It was a Sunday morning, not quite three years ago. I was at home with my husband, my two-year-old daughter, and our 10-month-old twin boys. And one of my boys crawled over to me and climbed up on me, and I felt something unusual in his diaper. I undid his pants, and a cell phone fell out. I looked at my husband with my eyebrow raised, and Nick said, oh, wow, he's been grumpy ever since I changed him. <laughs> we had issues. It, it was clear that the sleep deprivation was getting to us. We had to get control of these 10-month-old boys and their sleep habits. Actually, there were no sleep habits, and that was the problem. We would put them to bed at night, and then quickly, readily, immediately, one of them would sound off crying, yelling out for bottles. Uh, sometimes it started out funny, um, like he was up and ready to party, but um, when a frat party goes bad, it's ugly. Night after night after night, one of them would be up all night, parts of the night, and sometimes one of them would sleep almost the whole night. But because they are members of a union, the next night they would switch. <laughs> and so even though one of them was getting half the amount of sleep necessary for survival, Nick and I were getting none of it. Until that day, the cell phone fell out of the diaper. The day mommy and daddy decided to take the reins of control back. I don't want to sound cocky about it. I don't want to lead you to believe that it was easy. In my brief career as a parent at that point, it was one of the most difficult things I had ever done. Picture the scene. Nick and I would go to bed, and he had a digital clock on his chest. And when the yelling would start in the next room, he would say, Darling, it's only been three minutes. And I would wait and wait. But as the surveillance officer, I would go in at regular intervals and make sure my baby boys were safe. When you have two husky 10-month-old boys that are used to late-night formula, Breaking those habits can be hard. And you know what they say, there's no fury like that of a toddler scorned. <laughs> Bad habits were very hard to break. It's a long story, but finally, on the 320th night of their lives, Daniel and Joshua Garlinger slept. And Nick and I had hope again. Honestly, it broke my heart. Night after night, I'd go in and I'd peer over the edge of the crib. I'd give loving glances. I'd make sure they were okay. But if Daniel and Joshua were going to learn to sleep, we had to let them cry out for a while. It would yield results that were not achievable through any other means. Let me say that again. If Daniel and Joshua were going to learn to sleep, we had to let them cry out for a while because it would yield results that were not achievable through any other means. 
I'm sure my boys didn't understand what was going on, but Nick and I had an entirely different vantage point. Have you ever felt that way? You're crying out to God and he gives you no response. You feel as if there's no answer. You're held against your will in a situation. We continue in this series, now that's a great question, and as Steve said last week, I'll reiterate, we are not claiming that we'll solve life's dilemmas in 30-minute segments, but we're diving into some of them, and we're investigating some of them. So this weekend, we come to what is going on when we pray? What is going on when we pray? A few months ago, when Steve asked for you to write in questions, some of those questions about prayer. Does God hear me? I pray and I get no answer. Should I give up? How do I keep praying for so many years without an answer? What is going on when we pray? Maybe you're one of those people that's been calling out to God for a long time. Maybe some in this room feel inadequate to truly speak to God. And maybe some of us think it makes no difference. What is going on when we pray? Much more than we could ever imagine. Two quick biblical examples. Exodus chapter 17, Joshua leads the army out against the enemy. And a prayer team is up on the hill. When that prayer team is praying, Joshua's army is winning. When the prayer team rests, the enemy is winning. Ultimately, the prayer team prayed, and Joshua's army won the battle. And at the end, God said to Moses, write this on a scroll and be sure that Joshua hears it. God didn't want the military leader thinking his own military prowess had brought about the victory. God wanted him to know that prayer had brought about the victory. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel cries out to the Lord and then nothing. Three weeks later, this angel arrives and says, Oh, I was dispatched at the moment you prayed. But on the way, I was involved in spiritual battles, and it took 21 days. Daniel didn't know that. Daniel lived in real time like you and I do. He prayed, and he didn't know what was going to happen. What's going on when we pray? Much more than we could ever imagine. We're going to look this morning at a prayer that Abraham prayed, but first we'll see what was going on in his life, and afterward we'll see what happened as a result of that prayer. Abraham was this guy who went from not knowing God to knowing God. God had made some incredible promises to him. All nations on the earth will be blessed through you. Your offspring will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Abraham had to uproot and relocate more than once. His brother died, and in the process, he inherited his nephew. He suffered the death of his dad. And Abraham and his wife endured long-term infertility issues. 
One time, he and his wife even tried to help God solve that infertility problem, and Abraham had a baby with another woman. God didn't squish them like bugs, but God didn't let them rewrite his plan either. That's what was going on in day-to-day life for Abraham. That's what was going on before he prayed. And I'll ask you this morning, what's going on in your life right now? That's the platform from which your prayers will rise. What is going on when we pray? Much more than you could ever imagine. Genesis chapter 18, page 15 in your pew Bibles. God and some angelic beings show up to Abraham in the form of three men. And it's obvious as we read this passage that God and Abraham have a personal relationship. They they know each other. And we catch up with the story. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. God begins to let Abraham in on what he's going to do. But he says, no matter what happens, I will keep my promises to you, Abraham. And then verse 20. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. God has been hearing these cries for justice that people have been calling out to him about this city. And he's going there to see for himself. This isn't to indicate that in this one particular case, God didn't know what's going on. God knows everything. He always knows everything. But we get this picture here of what a careful and perfect judge he is of situations. God makes it clear that people have been crying out to him about all the sin in this city. And Abraham must have gulped because his nephew is living there. The nephew he inherited when his brother died. Listen to Abraham's prayer. Verse 22. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached God and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. 
Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of the five people? If I find 45 there, God said, I will not destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? God said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? God answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? God said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Abraham prays on behalf of the city of Sodom. But surely his nephew is in the forefront of his thinking. Abraham appeals to God on the basis of who God is. You're the judge of all the earth. You won't sweep away the righteous with the wicked. But Abraham also approaches God just with the sheer weight of relationship. Abraham was specific. Abraham was audacious. He was shameless. It might seem like Abraham is bugging God, but nothing in God's response seems to agree with that idea. Some have said that Abraham is negotiating with God. That might be. But what if Abraham is a child approaching a perfect heavenly father? A father he knows loves him. A father he's getting to know better and better through daily life. When I was a kid, my three older siblings and I knew to approach our parents very strategically. We would hold closed-door meetings. We would meet. We would make sure we were united. We'd select a spokesperson. And then we would go down the hallway into the kitchen, wherever they were. And the spokesperson would always begin, Mom and Dad, don't say anything until I'm through. <laughs> Audacious? Yes. Shameless? Yes. Based in relationship? Of course. They were our parents. They loved us and we knew that. They were saving for our college and we knew that. We didn't always get what we wanted, but the door was open for us to go. God loves Abraham and Abraham knows that. God has grand plans for Abraham, and Abraham knows that. And Abraham appeals to God with the full weight of all of that in his corner. How do you approach God? He loves you. The book of Hebrews tells us we can go to God's throne with confidence. 
verse 33. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Abraham prayed until God was finished. That's what Abraham's role was to do, to pray. It would be God's job to take care of the situation. And the story continues, chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. Lot prepares this feast for these angels, and he serves them very graciously. Then we come to verse 4. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. We need to stop here for a minute and agree that this is one of those passages that brings up more questions. We don't have time to unpack all of it this morning, but we acknowledge we're going to have further questions as we continue on. The passage tells us that all the men, both young and old, were part of this mob. There is widespread lawlessness in this city. The outcry against it was not exaggerated. The story goes on and Lot winds up offering his own daughters to this mob in exchange for the angelic visitors that were in his house. Could a father truly suggest such an idea? Some have said that Lot was just being sarcastic. Like, like maybe he would say to his mortgage holder, well you've taken all my money, have my firstborn too. But of course, the other angle on this is that it's just a demonstration of the depravity that was rampant in the city. Would a dad do that? My dad would never have joked about offering me and my sisters to a mob. And my husband would never offer our daughter to a mob. And if you are here this morning, and anyone has ever offered you in an inappropriate way like that, they were wrong. This is sin. The outcry against this place was valid. The intensity of the mob increases. They even try to break down the door of the house. And then we come to verse 10 of chapter 19. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. Things in this city are terrible, and nephew Lot is in a big mess, and he seems to be the last to realize just how big the mess is. But God heard Abraham's prayer. What is going on when we pray? Much more than we could ever imagine. 
The story continues, and the mob with the blindness is diverted, and the angels tell Lot, get your family out of here. And they even tell him, we've been sent by God to destroy this place. And then we come to verse 15. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When Lot hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives! Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. God gave mercy to Lot and his wife and daughters. Mercy can be described as not getting what we deserve. Lot is making poor choices. Lot seems to have strayed far from what's right. He doesn't obey quickly. He gets his personal GPS out and punches in a better location than the one God revealed to him through the angels. But will you dare allow me to suggest God had heard the prayer of Abraham. There's no way Abraham could have known everything that he was praying about. But God did. And God heard when Abraham let out with his pleas. God goes above and beyond anything Abraham had requested. Abraham stopped at ten righteous people. And it doesn't seem like there are ten righteous people living in Sodom. God heard the cries for justice. He heard Abraham's prayers. He understood how much Abraham loved his nephew. And God recognized this situation that only mercy could handle. God is able to be just and gracious, tolerant and disciplining all at the same time. I'm not. I don't think any of us are. I'm not even sure you and I can understand all of this that was going on all at once. But God is able and he handles things beautifully. Chapter 19, verse 23. By the time Lot reached Zor, that was the little town, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the land, all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. 
How does somebody turn into a pillar of salt? I don't know. I read a bit about it in a book, and you can get the book if you want to learn more about that. Um, I don't claim to get all that's going on. I don't understand how godly Abraham's nephew could have wound up in this predicament. And I certainly don't want you to think that I claim to know all there is about prayer. But Abraham prayed, and we just witnessed what happened when he did. Let me ask you, is there someone in your life that you care about? Someone you are praying fervently for? Maybe you are in a very painful situation. Verse 27. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Did Abraham go back there to keep praying? Did he go back in hopes of meeting with God again? Did he go back to look down on the city? He went there expectantly. And I urge you today, approach God expectantly. My husband and I prayed for children for almost seven years. Our daughter was born in 2006 and our sons in 2007. And my life was changed through my process of praying. I learned to wait. I learned to be vulnerable with others. I learned to cry out to God even when I didn't know any answer was happening. But I didn't learn those quickly. I didn't learn everything there is to learn. And to this very day, I continue to struggle. There was so much going on, there's no way I could understand it. But still, to this day, things pop up and I learn more what God was doing. In 2004, I went to Africa with a team of our women. And while I was there, a missionary prayed an African twin blessing over me. They work. Four years later, thousands of miles away, right here in Salem Hospital, her prayer is answered. About three years ago, I'm in the post office in Kaiser, just minding my own business, waiting in line. And the woman in front of me says, is that your miracle baby? She looked at my daughter. And I didn't know this woman, but I knew the answer to her question. And so I said, yes, it is. She proceeded to tell me she doesn't go to our church, but a friend of hers does, and somehow she had known that Nick and I had prayed for children. And I don't know how God does everything he does, but that woman was very positively impacted that day when she saw that chatty little brown-haired answer to prayer. What's going on when we pray? Much more than we could ever imagine. 
You might be here this morning wondering just how vulnerable to make yourself. Maybe you wonder, do I come forward and meet with one of those people and ask them to pray for me? Maybe you wonder if you dare take your request to God one more time. I'm not suggesting if you pray hard enough or wait long enough or engage enough prayer force with you that you will get what you're asking for. But I can tell you what I've learned personally. When my children arrived, I knew beyond a doubt that God had brought them. And there's something even greater that I've experienced. God himself has shown up to me personally, powerfully, more than I could ever have imagined. He loves me. He's mine. And he feels the same way about you.